Hey, Tyler. Roxy, I've been doing some reading, and from now on, please address me by my new name, Whiskey Battleaxe Braverman. Uh, can I just do whiskey? <laughs> that's a great idea. I think that's I think that's going to be the way moving forward. Cool. Gravity. All right, well, from Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, Wintertime Edition. I'm Roxy Stone, here with whiskey <laughs> and you my friends call me real ones call me tyler huckabee for real and we are calling this series apocryphon that's right we are actually calling it apocryphon when i first pitched that name to you you said you thought that it had a lot of energy behind it and i feel it right now all the okay. energy all the fun <laughs> on every showing. episode of this show we talk about a popular influential or at least lucrative, Christian book from the 90s or 2000s. We'll discuss how it shaped American Christianity, our own personal faith journeys, and how it's aged in our current dystopian Christian nationalist hellscape. And on this episode, we are talking about John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Wild at Heart is a 2001 book by John Eldridge. Roxy, before we get into it, what do you remember about this book? Let's see. Let me put myself back in 2001. I was in college and I was part of a college ministry that ate this book up. That is what I remember. I remember it was everywhere and everybody was talking about it, especially all the guys. And, you know, I grew up in Colorado and was going to college in Colorado right at the foot of the mountains, also called the foothills. And so climbing was big at the time. And, you know, Eldridge is also, I think, in Colorado. So, you know, it had like this like mountain wild man resonance with uh, Colorado college boys. Sure. Sure. All those guys were like budding John, like Leighton John Eldridge's. And he gave them permission to be like, oh, he is like me plus a few years in a a publishing deal. Like, I wonder what it would be like to have read that book not in Colorado. How did that land with, say, you know, the Princeton crowd? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that, well, that's a big part of what comes up a lot in this whole book, because I was reading it in high school in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, which Mm. is not called the Foothills, because we don't have any of those. We had a a very flat landscape. Mm -hmm. I remember it feeling very 
aspirational, which I think is probably how a lot of men right. encountered this book. Like it opens in a plane that's flying in the mountains in Alaska and it sounded awesome. It probably was awesome I'm to sure be it a was. part yeah. of it. Yeah. But it's something that I would have loved to be a part of, but I had no way to really be a part of that because my life didn't have a lot of wildness in it. I wasn't wildness adjacent. Well, here was the wrinkle for me was that I also wanted to be a part of it. And I also (laughs) was living in the wilds of Colorado, but it wasn't for me a damsel Not in distress, but supposed to be in distress. <laughs> My problem was situational. Yours was biological. Yeah. Or, you know, according to Eldridge, like in my soul, I was a woman, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so uh-huh. like I, uh-huh. adventure was not calling for me. Hopefully I was calling for a man to save me. That was the message, right? So I don't know. I mean, it was a weird, it landed really weird for me. Did it strike true to you at that time in your faith? Were you like, yes, this feels like correct information about the reality of the Christian life that I'm embarking on? No. I resisted it pretty hard. And I think I actually like had some pretty, some tense conversations with some young men in my life who (laughs) were reading it and like, you know, eating it up. And I was taking a women's studies class. I was like in all of these college lit classes with the feminists. And Uh I was having a hard time squaring the circle on this one. And I had read it. I read it right after Sacred Romance. Like I I know Sacred Romance came out a while before that, but it was popular among my peers at the same time as Wild at Heart. And so I remember finding moments in Sacred Romance that I could resonate with, but I had a really hard time with the messaging in Wild at Heart as someone who had grown up a bit of a tomboy and loves sports and love adventure and loves hiking and rock climbing and fishing and all the things. And I was like, I don't see myself in the women he's describing here and the mm-hmm. the longings that these women are supposed to have like soul deep. Insofar as women factor into the book whatsoever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with this book, Wild at Heart, if I was going to sum it up in a very basic premise, it's that Christian dudes in particular have forgotten how to rock. And John Eldridge is here to remind us that rocking is uh, our true divine calling in the world. And we are going to talk a little bit more about how all that worked out next. But first... We're going to do a little pop quiz. This is just to test your knowledge and get us all on the same page. So uh, I have okay. prepared another quiz. Another quiz. Yeah, you did so good on the Blue Light Jazz one. I want to do it again. Uh-oh. So are you ready for it? I don't know. I, I'm i afraid I blocked this one out. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. Well, as the man, I can mm. be here to lead you through it and, and get you through to the other side. And save me. Yeah. And rescue you if things go awry. Uh, which they will, Great. because Definitely. you're in distress. Okay, so <laughs> there's three questions. First up, according to Eldridge, in the heart of every man is a desperate desire for three things. Can you name, I'll just say one of the three things. Okay, well, I think adventure is one. Mm-hmm. There was something about a woman to save. I think the saving was part of it. 
and maybe purpose or something? I'm going to give you partial credit mm. on pretty much all of those. Okay. It's a a desire for a battle to fight oh, something yeah. violent, right? Which maybe is your right. mission when you said, I'm going to give you that one. Uh, an adventure to live. So yeah, okay, adventure. I got that one. And a beauty to rescue. Okay. Which is usually the damsel, but it doesn't have to be. He's like careful. It can also be like beautiful nature. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Beauty is a big part of it. And... It's women, but it's also, it's everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You remember it maybe better than you thought you did. <laughs> I didn't need to rescue you there. Okay, question two. <laughs> By my count, Eldridge mentions at least 20 movies in Wild at Heart. Oh. Can you name five of them? Well, I can name one, and that was Braveheart. Braveheart is like the blueprint. This book would not exist without Braveheart. Yeah, that's right. Uh. Uh, did it even start Russell Crowe? Like, was Gladiator? Yeah, or was that Gladiator. Post- okay. Nope, you got it. Gladiator's good. Right. Is, okay. Yeah, you're, okay. It was close, but you're there. Uh, you got it. I don't know. The Patriot? Mm-hmm. Patriot. Really? I got three of yeah. them already? You're oh already three. You, okay. you got two more to go. Princess Bride. I don't have Princess Bride in here. Oh, that would have been a good one, though. That actually, I would have really respected that. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> would have shaken things uh, up a little. I don't know. Rocky? No, no, you got. I'll give you one more guess, and then I'll. I won't read all twenty of them, but I'm gonna give you a few more. I'm sure there was another war one, like a Vietnam one, maybe. I don't. Nah, mm. yeah, you could. I mean, I would have accepted the Matrix comes up oh. a lot. Uh, oh, the Lord right. of the that Rings, which we're only like halfway through when this came out, but that those books are referenced a lot. There's Indiana Jones movies come up. There's Remember the Titans. Uh, a mm. river runs through it. Legends of the Fall is a really big one. He goes goes back to Legends of the Fall a lot. Yeah, I like that movie. Last question. Eldridge recounts reading a quote in a bookstore that changed his life. And I believe it was at the front of a book. And he says he like walked in, opened a book, read this book, which was like the opening, the opening epigraph, and was so moved that he put the book down and walked out. And it like it's gonna set the stage for the rest of his life. It says, Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you and I have some options for you here. Ask yourself what makes you a real man. Ask yourself what makes you ready for battle. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. Or ask yourself what makes you horny for adventure. <laughs> I'm so glad I waited for the, <laughs> for the multiple choice. Uh, in my head, as you're reading it, I finished it with Come Alive. That's, that is correct. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right. I have heard that quote before. I couldn't tell you who said it. And I think maybe it's been misattributed more than once. I looked up into it a little bit, and I think I actually found who said it, but I didn't write it down. So, so you will <laughs> me and Eldridge, neither of us know who originally said wrote this quote. We're in the same boat here. But I'm not writing a book about it. I'm just recording a podcast. So <laughs> I think he has the fault. All right. Yeah, I, I think you passed again. You got three for three. No night in shine mirror for you, Roxy Stone. You got through it all on your own <laughs> with your little female brain. So that's amazing. That's right. It is amazing. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about why we picked this book and just give a little bit of context for what it was like when this book came out. Okay. So like I said earlier, this book releases the spring of two, the April of 2001. 
Uh, it takes off right away, but it really starts to land and sells in even greater quantities post 9-11. Mm-hmm. After 9-11, you know, obviously America, our cowboy image is really shaken up. You have this surge mm-hmm. of like deeply Christian guy sentiment about how like for a long time we we thought we were the top dog. Now we kind of feel like we're not. Have we lost our way? Where did we go wrong? What happened to our status? And that uh, is sort of tied in with this idea. The only way to get us back on track, the only way to come out on top again is by going over to the Middle East and start kicking butt like Americans do. And this becomes very tied in. You can see that there's like an ethical dimension or redemptive dimension even to violence. And I think that's a really important context for how the rest of this book starts to land. And as we've mentioned, it follows also in the wake of these movies that had this massive box office success like Braveheart, like Gladiator. They sort of elevate the redemptive violence of men, that violence is not just chaos, it's not just bad. It can be used to save, to save women, to save a country. These movies, massive commercial success, and Christians, you know, they want to be part of it. Yeah, there's not really that burgeoning Christian film culture that can get in on this. So they just have to adopt these movies as their own thing instead of creating their own, like, God's Not Dead knockoff of Braveheart, which in Mel Gibson's case, he's more than happy to give that to them and to leave little Easter eggs in there that make it pretty easy for the church to say, Mm -hmm. this is a Christian allegory. Mm -hmm. And that is something that John Eldridge really uses. He grew up a theater kid in California. He's a trained counselor uh, and he is a seasoned outdoorsman. He's the perfect, you could not in a lab create a better guy to write this kind of book or to deliver this message. He spends 12 years working at Focus on the Family, which at the time and even now seems like a very odd fit because Mm -hmm. I'm sure he stuck out like a sore thumb there. After he's there for a long time, he writes a few books, Sacred Romance, like you talked about, Journey of Desire, Mm -hmm. co-authors Sacred Romance with a dear friend of his who passes away in a climbing accident, which was clearly a very formative uh, experience for him. So he starts what's called Ransomed Heart Ministries, and that's when we get Wild at Heart, discovering the secret of a man's soul. And as you said, the book was extremely popular. It caught on pretty quickly. I remember it being read almost immediately. Like I remember it being read in the spring of 2001 Mm -hmm. by my cohort. And according to this book, it goes on to diagnose the problem of the world, society at large, that men have lost their manness. They're just not big enough <laughs> badasses anymore. <laughs> they're not they're not warrior poets anymore. Exactly. The favorite phrase of the book. <laughs> and I mean, it's not like this is a brand new idea for Christians. No. Which is what's interesting. Yeah. But it comes at a time when maybe, you know, Kristen Dume talks about this a little bit in Jesus and John Wayne. Like it's an idea that existed in ebbs and flows in Christianity. And yeah. this is sort of coming on the heels of Promise Keepers, the sort of height of men's ministry, but it's at a time when men recovering their emotions, their emotional side, getting in Mm. touch with that. That was like a big part of some of what Promise Keepers was talking about. And this was like, let's get back to some of the, the tough as nails, but still hold on to some of that emotional 
knowledge. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, Eldridge is, we get into this, but his counseling training serves him pretty well in the book mm-hmm. because every time he, it starts to get way too full of bravado and mm-hmm. men need to kick more ass, it kind of comes back to, but men are also sensitive and we're poets and artists and we need to be listening to more music and nature and, right. and things like that. So his idea of the ideal man is really this Renaissance guy who can do it, who is, you know, deadly with the blade, but also knows how to sweep a lady off her feet and also takes time to like drink wine and listen to poetry at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. That's, you know, a very, I'd say well-rounded, that's probably not quite the right word for it, but, but just has a lot going on and is very, is really working at peak potential mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, etc. Yeah, the book doesn't really shy away from sex as part of the male calling. God calls men to be real stallions in the sack. That comes up a lot. I think that explains a lot of why this book really takes off. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to sell water in the desert. It's easy. Like guys love hearing about how much they were created to rock. Yeah, I was struck in thinking about Wild at Heart again. And for those of you avid listeners who heard our masculinity crisis episode this summer, I kept thinking, like, what is wild at heart for today? And was kind of struck by this through line from many of the things that Eldred said to popular authors speaking to men and to the masculinity crisis today, like Jordan Peterson, also a counselor, a therapist, and this reliance on on things like the meta-myth. They're all the hero's journey. Yeah, it's a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And Eldridge says, not only is it a good tool for creating a narrative, but it's also, this is how God created. The life God created for you basically can be plotted along these points as well. You are Frodo, you are Neo, you are Luke Skywalker being called out of a unlikely place to change the world and yourself be transformed. Right. But I think what he does is he really spiritualizes, right? Right. The hero's journey. Uh The hero's journey isn't just Joseph Campbell's meta myth. The hero's journey now is God's call for men. This is the way to fulfill your destiny, your soul's greatest desire, the thing that God made you for as a man since Adam first (laughs) was made in Eden, you know, like this Mm -hmm. is the only way to reach your greatest calling as a Christian is to lead this hero's journey. And so I think that's, that's the interesting like conflation that happens, you know, I mean, this is a moment that led to things like Driscoll being like, William Wallace is our hero. All Christian men have become sissified. Wasn't Mark Driscoll's pen name on those old forums? Wasn't it he like William Wallace lover or something like, I can't remember what the exact one was. William Wallace 13 or something. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Because the flip side of this and Eldridge's binary is that women do factor into this, but only as the side piece. Mm -hmm. Like you are the beauty that needs to be rescued and that women ultimately want this. Like a woman who is truly in touch with God's call for her life knows that she needs to be rescued and swept away on this awesome adventure. And the man can't do it without her. He's not going to be living his full adventure out until he finds 
this damsel to rescue from the tower or from the Death Star or, or whatever it is. So much gender essentialism. Uh-huh. I feel like we could get canceled just for talking about this right now. Well, then you would need to be the one who rescued me. And we can't have that. All right. We'll both try to rescue ourselves from getting canceled. <laughs> and we'll unpack all of this and more after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the dope on the Pope. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City or here on Apocryphon, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. And if you have some suggestions for books you'd like to see us cover, we would love to hear those too. Hit us up on social media. You can find us both in all the places. Well, sort of. I'm kind of on X, kind of on threads, kind of on Instagram. (laughs) I will not see you if you find me on Twitter. (laughs) If you need a blue sky invite, I've got like so many of them. Don't look for us on TikTok. (laughs) Or you can email us at sbtcpodcast. That's sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We would love to hear from you. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, But I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So Wild at Heart, it unfolds in three parts or what Eldridge calls movements. In the first movement, he talks about how guys are naturally wild. They're adventurous. They're awesome. Maybe modern society has pushed that down a little bit, but it's there. We just have to uncover it. And the reason that men are so adventurous and wild is because God is also naturally wild and adventurous and awesome. So the more you rock, the more you're reflecting God, in other words. As John said, John, I call him John like I know him. We're not friends. <laughs> Eldred says, adventure with all its requisite danger and wildness is a deeply spiritual longing written into the soul of man. So like I said, it is not hard to see why this takes mm-hmm. hold. He says towards the end of this first movement that the question at the heart of every man is, do I have what it takes? 
And Wild at Heart answers this conclusively in the affirmative. Hell yeah, you've got what it takes. You just need to really own it and, and get in touch with who God created you to be. And the second movement gets into one of the obstacles. The second movement is about wounds. Uh, Eldridge says that every man has these deep psychological wounds, and those are what are preventing him from being all he can be as a man. And guess where the wounds come from? They come from their dads. (laughs) These are father wounds. And as Eldridge puts it, every boy in his journey to become a man takes an arrow in the center of his heart in the place of his strength. Because the wound is rarely discussed and even more rarely healed, every man carries a wound and the wound is nearly always given by his father, end quote. This part did not really click with me, so Mm. it could be one of those things that... Eldridge was just kind of saying something that was very true about himself, but not necessarily true of other people. But you're not going to go too wrong, assuming that your audience has some sort of father issue or anger from their dads. He says that men at large lack the emotional and mental resources to address this wound. So instead, we create these facades to get us through life, these coping mechanisms that become our identities. He calls this identity the poser. And it's usually either like this passive, rizzless dweeb who has no passion and, and works a desk job and is not going mm-hmm. camping and you know being his best self. Or it's an angry, abusive jerk who is like this a total chaotic neutral who goes out of his way to push other people away violently because he doesn't know how to address his wound. And these are defense mechanisms, and they keep men from having to deal with the wound. And I think you can see from this, this is where a lot of Eldridge's like counselor training is coming into play. It's not all bad. Like we all know we have parental wounds, and we're all trying to dig at those. It was definitely a true thing that men, especially men of Eldridge's generation and probably his dad's generation, there was like a lot of stigma around dealing with emotional health, around being emotional, around crying, around any of that. And there wasn't any kind of real language or invitation to process abuse or to process wounds. And so, you know, I think what Eldridge gets at is that there's this tendency to either like lash out or withdraw as coping Mm -hmm. mechanisms. And again, pretty standard psychology stuff, but I think revelatory for evangelicals at the time in that it was distanced from a sort of secular psychology and given spiritual language to baptize it, to give permission. Yeah, sort of a Trojan horse to sneak in some pretty Mm -hmm. basic counseling stuff. This isn't a bad thing to help men learn about themselves, Mm -hmm. that you probably have some trauma that you have not dealt with. And it might be time to look into that. I think it also would be good to for this book to then say, and that's why you should go to counseling. But that is not, that's not <laughs> no. really the direction no, says, that this, is this why book you takes. Should, you should go to an archery range. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Play some paintball. <laughs> we keep coming back to this, but the obvious question here that you are probably wondering and that anybody who's reading this now would wonder is, why is this gendered? Why mm-hmm. do men have this wound, this arrow wound, he calls it, from their fathers that is our responsibility to to get over, but women are just excluded from that. You know, obviously he talks about the wounds that women have and and he, he gets very 
he speaks at great length about those in this and in even more so in future books. But the idea here is that men have this unique wound and this need to address it while women's wounds can usually be sort of satiated with God via finding a romantic partnership and a man who can meet that wound, that that lack in their life. And this question, the question of like gender essentialism that we keep coming up on, this really hangs over the third movement, which is the real heart of the book. This is where we get into those core desires we talked about in the pop quiz, mm-hmm. battle to fight, adventure to live, beauty to rescue, and uh, this idea that every guy needs these and whether or not he even realizes it, he, he wants these things. He is hardwired to get these things. And until he gets them, he's going to be either the rizless dweeb or the angry jerk that we were talking about earlier. And he encounters a lot of obstacles on the way to achieving these things. One big one. Do your regular listeners know that you're getting married soon? They do know that I'm engaged. But why'd you bring that up? This comes with a word of caution (laughs) because wives are one of the, a primary obstacle on the way to guys achieving these things. As he writes, um, (laughs) he writes, emasculation happens in marriage as well. Women are often attracted to the wilder side of a man, but Mm -hmm. once having caught him, they settle down to the task of domesticating him. Mm -hmm. Ironically, If he gives in, he'll resent her for it, and she in turn will wonder where the passion has gone. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'll really have to watch out for that in the coming years. Cautionary tale. I've heard that before. Yeah. I think that's uh, this whole domesticating the male. We've been cautioned against that for a long time as women. Well, it's just the ball and chain talk, right? Yeah, it really is. This goes back a long time. (laughs) I mean, Eldridge take some pains, you know, that those in his footsteps don't necessarily take, I think, which, you know, he does some work to try to say women don't need to be subservient to men, that they are equal to men. Mm -hmm. But it does make it hard to square with some of his other arguments about how men have this power. They're supposed to be the guy doing the rescuing and women need to be rescued. They're the ones needing to be rescued, which sends some signals about who has the strength here. Right. And I think that part of that explains why this book begat so many other, even worse books Mm -hmm. that didn't even try, didn't even bother with these asides about the importance of, you know, the dignity of women and, and respecting women on their own terms. And I think that's a really important part of talking about this book. And we'll get to that in just a minute. When we were first kind of talking about this podcast, Tyler, We honestly weren't sure whether to include Wild at Heart because it felt a little too obvious. Like, hasn't this book been dissected enough? But we kept coming back to it, I think, in part because its it's legacy just seems really salient today, in part because there is sort of this, like, well-publicized, well-discussed masculinity crisis. I think also because it's easy to draw some through lines from it to a bunch of things happening today from the masculinizing of Christian nationalism or Mm -hmm. on a flip side, like the abuse crisis and the ways that churches have tried to deal with or tried to suppress that. And I think for you, you wanted to talk about why you didn't think this book was all that bad. (laughs) I, 
trying to think of a better way to phrase that. There may not be one. All bad. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't. I remember talking, this was a few years ago, you you mentioned Kristen uh, DeMay earlier, the author of Jesus and John Wayne, and uh, we were talking about this book a little bit on another interview that I did with her, and she mentioned that she feels like the worst parts of this book's legacy don't come from the book itself, Mm. but from the people who tried to copy it and just didn't really understand it or just use this as permission to be something Mm -hmm. much worse than Eldridge would have advised or was trying to promote. You could say this was Eldridge was too sloppy in preventing people from taking what he was trying to say this way. Or you could say that you really can't have this conversation the way he wants to have it without it inevitably toxifying to that, no matter how careful you are. Or, or maybe it's a mix of both. Does that make sense? Like either Eldridge had this conversation poorly or there's just mm-hmm. no right way to have this conversation without it eventually leading to some of the things we're seeing today with Christian men, an ascendant idea of muscular Christianity that mm-hmm. really needs women to get out of the way. To say nothing of, obviously, people who don't really fit into the gender binary right. or a Christian man who doesn't want to rescue a damsel from a bill who would like a knight in shining armor of his own. You know, these things just don't factor into this there's all sorts of exceptions to the rules that Eldridge creates here. And those are not really touched on in this book. Yeah. Th- there's a lot of totalizing and a lot of essentializing language in this book. I am curious, as you prepped for this episode, and as you thought about the enduring legacy of the book in your own life, maybe. Mm-hmm. What are some moments in the book that you want to rescue? Some some beauty <laughs> in the book yeah. that you want to rescue. What did you actually find has been helpful in your own life and has actually rung true? Here's what I'd say is that I think I'm somebody for whom the idea of the gender that I was assigned at birth has been a very useful concept for me in terms of figuring out my my identity within the context of the world around me. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of masculinity has been very helpful for me as our culture understands it. And I think that my relationship with God, you know, I think God's going to try to reach us through whatever tools God has. And if a cultural expression of masculinity is that thing, then I think a lot of what Eldridge says in here is probably kind of relevant about that. Like, yeah, I think it's a good thing for people to want to live bold, adventurous lives. And I think that people do need to be equipped for the conflicts that they that come their way. You don't have to call them battles. You can just call them like things are hard sometimes and you need, you're going to need to fight. And to that mm-hmm. extent, I think a lot of the advice in this book about those things is pretty useful. It's helpful to think of it that way. So those are things that have been useful for me because I happen to fall into this book's paradigm of mm-hmm. I'm a guy who strives to let, take my faith seriously. And so a lot of those tools work. But what's hard is, like you said, it totalizes those things. Mm-hmm. doesn't have a lot to offer people who don't fall within my extremely narrow context, including my wife. Right. Liz would not see herself in this, but much like you, Liz just right. doesn't fit this. I, you know, she did not need rescuing. It's probably the opposite in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And 
so I think that that is where this book starts to fall apart is as soon as you expand it beyond the very narrow scope of American straight white guy who has seen Braveheart and is a Christian. Like that's really about where it ends. Uh, that, that's not true. I would also say there, like we mentioned earlier, some of the stuff about like emotional intelligence in here mm-hmm. is good and getting Christian men to connect more with the arts. And uh, he talks a lot about poetry and theater and like old, right. And uh, those are all things that I obviously wish the modern church was more in touch with. And I wish those things had caught on more than the matrix stuff did. Or the Braveheart stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think about a little bit the crap. What's his name uh, in Parks and Rec? Oh, the Ron Swanson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ron Swanson. Like, there is a little bit of that, yeah, yeah. I think, in Eldridge's idea of who sure. the great white male is. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, there's some refinement underneath. You just wouldn't know it. You wouldn't guess it looking at him, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for the reluctant violence of what I would say Eldridge calls for, even in some of the movies that he he looks at, which is like these men are hoping for a peaceful life, a life of beauty and love, and it's threatened. And so they have to come out of that, but they rise to the occasion, but they still long for the peaceful life. Violence as a last resort. Exactly. Sort of, yeah, and yeah. only in a redemptive sort of fashion, only in a way of saving beauty. Mm-hmm. And yet they're always very good at violence. Like they never do it. But when called upon, they're yeah, ready to rock. They have what it takes, you know. And I think that's that's the fantasy being offered to men. A fantasy of you will be called upon and you will be capable of doing these things. And I think that the reluctance aspect of it has been shed. Well, yeah. And that's the sort of toxic aspect that it can lead to. Like, I mean, at an extreme, you get to an Andrew Tate, you know, you get to somebody who's just like embracing yeah. the violence and not even trying to save women anymore. Right. Yeah. Know? Just wants to punch somebody. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you that. Do you think if college age Roxy Stone had come across this book and it had all the, the same basic ideas, but it was not written to men. This was for anybody looking to, you know, Mm. embrace the Christian life. Does Mm. that address most of the issues that we have? Because that's kind of what Journey of Desire and Sacred Romance are a little bit. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. Hmm. I think I could get behind it better. Um, Mm. We do all want to feel a sense that we're cultivating or saving beauty and that there's excitement and adventure and fun and love and all of these things in our lives, right? That we're not called to just a boring life. Yeah. I think there was a lot of existential angst for a lot of people, not just men in this particular era of being stuck in a desk job, being indoors. Yeah. This is a year after American beauty, right? Yeah, With the, exactly. the Kevin Spacey, just like, yes. oh, like, what are we doing? We're, we're you know, right. we're wasting our one wild, precious life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think there is this like, ah, oh, I don't want to sit at a computer behind four walls, like all of my life and not get to enjoy. So yeah, I think it would have, I would have spoken to me and I wouldn't have been as rankled by it. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a level of privilege of choice here. Sure. 
you know, I think there's been a lot of books in the aftermath. Like this would have spoken a lot to college age Roxy that was like also super interested in being a radical Christian, yeah, sacrificing my life, like living at the most extreme highs and lows, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think in the years since I've been very attracted to books about like the quotidian life and like the quiet life and the value of like the discipline of like doing the dishes and the spiritual like enrichment. The brother that can Andrew, come Christianity. From, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe that is just the trajectory of adulthood. You know? <laughs> 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 yeah, I think I agree. It's interesting to talk to you about this because I feel like so much of what Eldridge writes in this book applies to you, especially probably to you like 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But you're somebody who's like very confident in, you know, in your gender as a woman too. So it's, yeah. it is weird how well this book both does fit you and yet completely is not intended for you. And I can imagine oh. that must have been very, very frustrating in a way that like it didn't even I can't tell you. I remember I remember so clearly because I really did. I like this book a lot. And then I went to college in Chicago. <laughs> and I remember talking to a friend of mine who she said that her and a bunch of her friends had gone out to Lake Michigan like late at night. And I think they went like skinny dipping in Lake Michigan and ripping mm-hmm. up copies of Wild at Heart and throwing them into the water <laughs> as a way of like reclaiming, you know, reclaiming. Amazing. But I can't tell you how stupid I felt that it hadn't occurred to me that a woman might not have appreciated being told that she mm-hmm. wanted to be rescued and that mm-hmm. that just was not on my radar at all. I think because this book takes such great pains to say, trust me, they do. Right. Even if they say they don't, they definitely do. And sometimes you're rescuing them from themselves. <laughs> yes. Right. Of course. But I think to your point, I think the beauty to rescue thing is not a bad impulse. It just doesn't have to be or or shouldn't necessarily be a, a woman. Like beauty mm-hmm. is in danger everywhere in mm-hmm. our society, all kinds of beauty. And rescuing that is hard work, resurrecting, you know, finding mm-hmm. and highlighting beautiful things like art and friendships and courage and humor is a challenge that I think we all need to take on. And I think that you could argue that that's part of the Christian law. That's a good ethical thing for Christians to do. And it doesn't have, and I think Eldridge would probably admit to that. I just wish that this book had been gotten outside of its own ass a little bit yes. <laughs> and, and understood, you know, the diversity of the type of people who might be seeking God and the type of life that Eldridge is talking about. Yeah. And I, I haven't really kept up with what John Eldridge has said or feels toward this book 20 some years later. Yeah. You know, I do think it came out at a time where I think it, it hastened an emerging entrenchment around gender within Christianity. Yes. You know, in 1999, you have the Southern Baptists in saying, officially women cannot be pastors, you know? And, you know, not long after that, you have like a lot of societal angst around same-sex marriage. And, you know, it really like, it really came out at a time when we were just beginning to enter into some real hard conversations about gender and sexuality as a society. And, you know, I think for Christians, 
at this time, it laid some groundwork for this is what it is to be a man, this is what it is to be a woman, Mm -hmm. and this is biblical. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Eldridge thinks about that now. I would be curious to ask him. I would too. I interviewed him during the COVID pandemic and had a, a really enjoyable conversation with him. And he had some advice. He 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 had reached out to Relevant when I was there just with some things that he kind of wanted to say about how people can be taking care of themselves at this time. And a lot mm-hmm. of it was very like good, but boilerplate counseling stuff about taking mm-hmm. care of your mental mm-hmm. health and things you can do to protect yourself, you know, during these difficult times and how to process the trauma. But it was still very much directed towards men. Like that was still, mm. and maybe that's just at this point, that's his lane. He sees that as his yeah. job, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself. I don't think so either. I mean, I think from our masculinity crisis episode, like it's not that I don't think that, that there's important messages to be aimed at people who have grown up and, you know, been societally conditioned to be masculine, to be feminine and thus have lived a certain kind of life and have a certain kind of set of problems because of it. I mean, there is worthwhile messaging to be aimed at that. I don't think we have to like, gender neutralize everything in order to offer clear messages to people because the reality of how people are conditioned in their gender is real. Yeah. There's value there. There's just also like a big spectrum and a lot of nuance (laughs) and, you know, a lot of desires that transcend gender or that cross gender. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what's really interesting to me is that both at the time of the writing of this book and still today, one thing that like could bring America together, that could unite the the right and the left and the MAGA and the cultural Marxists is that we all agree there's a problem with men. Like nobody thinks <laughs> that masculinity is like right. doing well right now. Right. And uh, you have the people like the Jordan Petersons of the world who say, well, the problem is guys just aren't taking charge enough and that these feminists would just get out of the way and these woke war would just get out of the way and let men be men again, then it would solve the problem. And then you have people on the other side who are kind of like, I think we've tried that. I think that's been the status quo for a long time. And maybe the real issue is, um, well, I mean, on the far side, you say like, men just need to get at it. You know, why are men even like that? That would be maybe <laughs> a, like another extreme, like, or, you know, the suggestion, which I would think that we would both more like, why, why can't it just be a little more equality? Why can't we see a little more dignity of people and a little more understanding and nuance of the complexity of gender and the idea that Adam and Eve, however they were created, probably wouldn't have a lot in common with our modern understanding of what gender is supposed to like. Adam wasn't into big trucks and football and Eve wasn't into Taylor Swift and pretty dresses. So what Mm. does gender mean? What what does it Mm -hmm. look like? We, We probably don't really know what that means in Genesis. So we should have a lot of grace and patience and a really open mind towards figuring out what that looks like today. And that's not necessarily something that Wild at Heart addressed. I don't know what Eldridge, yeah, I don't know what he would say. I would be interested to hear him. I I know he hasn't had like a Josh Harris, I could stay any goodbye, sort of mea culpa about it. Right. But I would think he would at least address these questions, but how he would do it, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like maybe we're going to, end a few of these episodes this way like i wonder what they think now <laughs> which they know where to find us sbtc podcast yeah. <laughs> so in the end in terms of rating this one as apocryphon oh, or yeah. apocryphal um 
It's not a full foul. It's not, but it's not a full fun. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Mixed bag. I would say leaning foul, but the stuff that's in there that's worthwhile, it's tough. I don't want to rehash it all Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. I found it more substantive than Blue Like Jazz, to be honest with you, reading it again. Mm. Not necessarily in ways that I agreed with, but I felt like the arguments had a little more on the brain. Mm-hmm. To the extent that that makes something more fun to read than than foul to read, that probably tips it things in its favor a little bit. One last question, and then we'll wrap. How many guys do you think had a copy of this book, like in the back pocket of the of the of the dungarees when they were running into the Capitol on January sixth? Oh, no. Can you imagine that? I would be very curious how many had read it. Yeah, I will not put that on John Eldridge and his of course not shoulders, but there was a lot of William Wallace aspirational energy happening on January 6th. And I wouldn't doubt that a lot of the men charging the Capitol thought that they were rescuing a damsel in distress named democracy or, or maybe named <laughs> yeah, Trump. Yeah, or I don't freedom, know. <laughs> yeah, Ameri- America freedom. generally. <laughs> <laughs> Apocryphon is a project of Saved by the City and is a religion news service production. Senior producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham and Julia Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Tyler Huckabee and Roxy Stone. Freedom! Freedom! <laughs>